Amen, amen. Good evening, good evening, church family. For those here and those online, we welcome you this evening, midweek service here. As you're getting settled in and opening up your Bibles to Judges chapter 6 that we will take this evening, um, one announcement, a new announcement, of course, ladies still have their Bible study on Tuesday morning and night, and men on on uh, Thursday night, that we also are starting to announce here, uh, believe it or not, we are coming upon Resurrection Sunday, so that's April 9th this year, We will. that's the purple flyer on the information desk, and we'll have that posted out there on the, on the Facebook and uh, etc., but we'll have sunrise service at 6.30 a.m. at the church, right out front like we did uh, the last couple of, of uh, Sundays, followed by coming into the, uh, the church for us to have a continental breakfast. Then we normally have, uh, we have every Sunday prayer time at 9 o'clock, so join us from every Sunday at 9 o'clock. But uh, we'll come here at 9 o'clock for prayer, and then our service, our regular service of uh, uh, Sunday service at 10 a.m. with communion, and then followed by a feast, a family feast. So bring something to share uh, with the, the church family. Again, we have refrigerators to put something in there that needs to be cold, or but come early enough to get that settled in there so you can get in here to start worshiping. at. Uh, if you come at 9 o'clock, then you have plenty of time to to uh, get uh, settled in for 10 o'clock service. But it will be a full day. It will be a blessed day. And hope you can come and invite your family. Because many times uh, people only go to church sometimes, especially as non-believers or those who are not quite walking with the Lord as, as strong as they should. They only usually go Christmas and Easter so uh, and other special occasions. We call them CEOs, right? So Christmas, Easter, and other special occasions. But not us. We come as much as we can, especially... We want to be fed, our spirit to be fed through and by the word of God and, and through fellowship and stuff every week. So every day at home, right? And open the word. So judges. We're going to talk about another judge this evening, Gideon, right? And so uh, everyone knows and familiar with Gideon. Uh, it will be two parts to this, chapter 6, and then we'll do chapter 7, uh, Lord willing, next uh, the following week. So Hey, let's open in prayer. Father, we thank you and praise you again that we can come, open up your word, and allow your Holy Spirit to speak to us or reveal, illuminate your word to our hearts, Lord. Our ears are, are open, our hearts are softened. We want to hear from you and speak to us in an individual way, but speak to us collectively, as, Lord, as a church body, and just that you be pleased and blessed in all the things that are said and done, Lord. Just Move in a mighty way in our hearts, in your people's hearts this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Gideon's call. It is amazing, and it is very shocking to many uh, to even be called by God, to be used by God for his purpose. And we're always shocked by that. And for some who see a calling on someone's life, they're shocked that they have a calling of God too, you know. Like, you know those people from their uh, prior to B.C., before Christ days. And you're like, how is a God calling that man, that woman, to, to do a work for him? But Gideon was uh, another one like that we will see this evening here uh, that God will use to bring back the nation of Israel from bondage because of their dis disobedience their unfaithfulness to God and we will see it again played out and God raised up a hero raised up a 
uh, a deliverer, in this case, the Gideon, to bring his people back out of bondage. So, but we'll start by saying, because the Israelites failed to obey the Lord fully, they failed to totally drive out the pagan people of, the, of Palestine in the days when they went into the promised land. And because they allowed pockets of the Canaanites to remain in the land, like a disease that might seem to be in remission will come out of remission. And eventually we find they came out of remission in a, a, such, a, a such a way after 200 years later. We see here in the scripture tonight, the Canaanites regained their strength and began to dominate and regulate and govern over the lives of the people of Israel. So we will see once again that same downward spiral of the nation of Israel. The apostasy to the servitude into bondage and to supplication. The crying out, the brokenness, the crying out to the Lord to save them. So in Judges 6, verse 1 here, we start by saying, Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. They Again, remember, they have just came out of being out of bondage for 40 years, and they received 40 years of rest because they came back to God. We saw that in chapter 5, verse 31. That's following the defeat of Syria of uh, the, the leader or the, the commander uh, over the nation there and eventually came to an end when they conquered and finally found him, even though they were mil militarily stronger with all the chariots. And in their prosperity and, and, uh, and complacency of 40 years of living life like, like nothing is happening and, and it's all going to be like this the rest of our lives, they went back and get back into the worldly things versus continuing to live their life for God. And the result is they started, Israel started again doing evil in the sight of the Lord, meaning they went away from the things of God and back into the world are what the Canaanites or the Midianites here, as we will see, were pulling them back in. They just did did not continue to walk with the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Midianites. It's interesting, God brought Israel into bondage through the oppression of the Midianites. And this was an example of God's grace, was it not? Some people say, oh, how can God be a loving God if they allowed that to happen? But it's actually God's grace that he allowed the Midianites to actually oppress his people to get to their attention so that they would stay following God. But here's a perfect example of God's grace and mercy to Israel because the oppression would make them turn back to God. It would have been worse if God said, fine, you don't want anything to do with me? Okay, fine, 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 fine. Go, go live the life in the world and let go of you. Can you imagine if God let go of you and didn't pull you back or didn't get your attention somehow, some way, so that you would turn back to him? And here he used the, these, these, the enemy to oppress the, his people, to get their attention, to realize what they were doing and how they were living and how they were thinking was not godly. It's not right. You need to turn. You need to repent. You need to call, cry out. You need to be broken. You need to come back to me. Now, it's interesting. Where do you see the Midianites and how that plays out historically? Well, if you've been studying along with us in the, in the Old Testament, you know the answer. 
But no, it's an interesting note here that when Sarah died, Abraham married a woman uh, named uh, Keturah with whom she had six sons. And one of them was a boy named Midian. To keep Isaac, the promise, the son of promise that God wanted on Isaac's life from being hassled by the sons of Keturah, Abraham sent Keturah's sons away and over the years the Median grew up and had his own tribe called the Medians or the Medianites. And they became the enemies of Israel. And throughout scripture, we see the sons of Midian constantly attacking the people of Israel. Amazing history. Verse 2, And then the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made for themselves the dens and the caves and the strongholds which are in the mountains. And so it was, whenever Israel had sown... Whenever they were out there reaping the harvest, they had planted seeds, it's harvest time, they're sowing their, their, their harvest for their food, that's what that means, the Medians would come up. Also the Amalekites, which were the descendants of who? Esau. Those were the Benduin uh, type people. They would come up during the harvest time. And the people of the east would come up against them. Then... They would encamp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep, nor ox, nor donkey. For if they would come up with their livestock and their, and their tents coming in as numerous as locusts, both they and their camels were without number. And they would enter the land to destroy it. So Israel greatly impoverished because of the Midianites and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. We'll pause there. Lots in here in these verses right here. Because through what God did is, okay, you want to live your life away from me? Okay, I'm not going to come in and rescue you here. I'm going to allow the enemy to come a play with your life. And they're going to come in, the Midianites, to oppress you coming in because of the sin of Israel. Note that. It wasn't the Midianites' fault, really. It was their sin that caused and allowed the enemies to come into their lives to oppress them. But it brought Israel into humiliation because of this. Before they turned back to God, they had to be humbled. They had to be broken, living as cave dwellers we see here in the verse 2. They lived in rocks and caves and dens and strongholds in the mountains instead of being like a normal civilization like they had as a people in a town. They had to go hide in the rocks like animals because they were oppressed and being the enemies were having a field day with them. The Midianites did not continually occupy the land. No, the scripture tells us they only came up during the time of harvest to steal what the Israelites grew. They did all the work to get it done and the, and the blessing from that. They came in and just took everything from them and they had to hide. And they had to hide in rocks and mountains and caves just to hide their food to, to, so they would have something to sustain. But the scripture says they had no sustenance to be able to continue to live. They left them no sustenance for Israel. See, Israel's sin made all their hard work profitless, fruitless, 
All their produce, livestock were stolen after they all the hard work to bring to fruition. Sin does this in our lives as well. Sin does not sit there and allow you to prosper as a child of God. Sin does it, and it robs us of what we work hard to gain. And there are many accomplished men who lose everything of life because they won't stop their sin. All is lost in order to gain something from this world. And in retrospect, it seems like you have nothing. It just Everything you get, it just goes through your fingers. It's not, and nothing, nothing substantial. And, and, and you, your fruit of your life, after all that time, you look back and go, what, what did I have to show for any of that? You won't. Because your sin will not allow that. There will be no fruit from that. There's no blessing from God. And they did it as far as Gaza, the whole breadth of the land from Jordan to the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. That's the whole area right there that he's referring to. And the whole land was ravaged and inhabitants deprived of all the necessities of life in that area. So not like, okay, here they come again. Let's go to the Mediterranean and camp out there in our summer homes or something. And we'll get through the crisis. And then when everything's done, then we'll come back to the city. No, that's... That's how people think today. No, no, everything was ravaged across the land there. But notice here what's interesting, as most people understand, is these people were uh, up and coming in regards to the latest and greatest vehicle called the camel. They were the first ones to actually um, domesticize camels and use them for the purpose of war and the purpose of travel and the purpose of, 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 of daily life here. And they used this, the Midianites used this desert-dwelling type people. They were nomadic, and they dominated Israel because of their effective use of these camels. They're like locusts. There were so many of them. And they were so fast and so good in war and, and, and working with, against the enemy that the first people in history was using them like this gave a huge military advantage against the people. No one's going to stop them. And then the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Finally, here, and so after seven years of this going on, a long season of humiliation, of oppression, and fruitless labor, and poverty, and, and, and domination by an oppressive power, Israel finally cried out to the Lord. Finally. Prayer was their last resort instead of their first resource. It should have been the very first thing. Even since the first season, these enemies come in, they should have been crying out to God to help them and to save them. No, it took them seven years to finally be broken and humbled to come back to the Lord. What is it in our nature that is so stubborn? Why is it that we so desperately desire to work things out in our own strength? Versus God's strength. Why does it take us sometimes years to find out our, ourselves in a position or find ourselves in a, in a position of brokenness before God before we finally will cry out to God? So what happens here? In verse 7 through 10, we see that God is going to send a prophet to speak to his people. Look at what happens. And it's verse 7. It came to pass when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord because of the Midianites that the Lord sent a prophet to the children of Israel who said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up 
from brought you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage. And I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. Also I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites in the whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. So God sends a, sends a prophet a man God uses with that gift of prophet as a prophet to be able to speak God's words to the people. And he says, the Lord has sent me, and he says, and the delivering, not the delivering judge, that's going to come here, the delivering judge, uh, Gideon was going to be coming here. So it's not who we're referring to. We don't even know who the prophet is. It doesn't say who the prophet is. But Israel could receive and respond Obviously, to the judge of Gideon when it comes time. But here, God wanted just his word to get out to the people to let them know. You have, you have not obeyed my voice. Do you not remember what I have done for you, my people, in the past? I brought you out of bondage, out of Egypt. All the oppression, all the, the slavery, all the bondage, everything that the world was doing to you. I brought you out. Do you not remember this? I brought you into the promised land like I said I would. I took out care of your enemy so you could be there. But you're not obeying. You're not listening. You're just doing your own thing. You're just trying to work this deal out on your, well, your deal. Half obedience is still disobedience. So God spoke through the prophet, reminding Israel of all he had did for them. The past... To face their current crisis, he reminds them of how he brought them through the past. He'll help us through his current crisis as well. But Israel needed that reminder. Don't we need that reminder? As we read the word of God, doesn't it remind us of the fact that what God has done in the past and what he's going to bring us through the current crisis? And, and we don't have to fear the future? It reminds us. It reminds them. Of the love of God. That the God loving and loving enough before to deliver them out of Egypt. And they still love them. Enough to now bring them another deliverer again. And raise them up, get them out, out, of, uh, out of this oppression for the past seven years. He's going to bring and deliver these, them out from the Midianites so again, moments like this, it reminds them of their God's love. And it also reminds them of the power of God. He had the power to bring him out of Egypt. And Pharaoh was powerful. But he's still, God is powerful enough to bring and deliver you out of whatever bondage you are in. You must remember that. And he's reminding them. Midianites, I got the power to take them out. You just cry to me. I will take care of this. Just come to me. Be humbled. Be broken here. Come back to me. Trust me. But the reason why you're in the situation you're in is because you're not obedient to my voice. God sent the messenger to tell them what the real problem is, not the Midianites. They're not the problem. You're the problem. You're the problem. Yes, the Midianites seem to be so strong. 
But you were so disobedient is what the problem was. See, Israel thought the problem was the Midianites. But the real problem was Israel. It was their human nature to blame others to, for the problems that they were causing. It was your problem, and you're blaming everybody else, but it's really your problem. And so the message of the prophet here also shows that when Israel cried out to the Lord, they didn't understand that they were the problem, but they still at least went to God. Crying out to God for help and did not mean that they recognized and repented of their sin. Many will cry out and, and, and pain because of their sin. And they want to be relieved of their sin. But that does not mean they are repentant and recognize they're the problem. It was their sin. It's not a disease. It's not, it's not the government's fault. It's not the, my whatever, whoever, fill in the blank and whatever you want. And not your past and your parents and your grand. The reason why many times people are in bondage is because it's their sin. So what happened? Ah, prophet spoke, but look what happens here in verse 11 through 13. Now the angel of the Lord came. In your Bible, it should be a capital A for deity. And sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash and Abi. Abizarite, while his son Gibeon threshed wheat in the wine press in order to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Gideon said to him, Get out of here. No, he didn't say that. He said, Gideon said to him, Oh, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all of this happened to us? And where are all his mercies which our fathers told us about? Saying, Did not the Lord bring us up out, of, out from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. So the angel of the Lord came. God came and showed up and re revealed himself, Jesus Christ. We call this a theophany or Christophany, which is the appearance of Jesus Christ in the flesh to reveal here in the Old Testament. It's the Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ in human bodily form before his incarnation in Bethlehem we see in the New Testament. But notice here, the description of the encounter with the angel of the Lord shows that this is not merely an angel speaking on behalf of God. No, 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 no. It shows that God himself appearing in human form, speaking to Gideon. You see it in verse 14. And then the Lord turned to him and said, turned to him, it's a physical. And the Lord said to him, speaking to him directly, now keep in mind, remember, the, remember and understand who God is. Since no, God, no man has seen God the Father at any time, you will not. We see that very clear in John 1 verse 18 and John 5 27. You will not see God the Father at all. 
by the nature of the Holy Spirit, is a spirit without bodily form. It is then reasonable to understand who he is seeing. He is seeing the appearance of the second person of the Trinity, and it is the appearance of God the Son. But however, this is not the incarnation in the same sense that Jesus was as a baby in Bethlehem. At Bethlehem, Jesus was truly and fully human while also being truly and fully God. Here it appears, Jesus took the mere appearance of humanity doing so for a very specific purpose. And we only see it a few times in the Old Testament. But why did he come and where is Gideon at this point? Gideon is in the thresh, uh, thresh, thresh, and threshed, uh, or the threshold or thresh, threshing the wheat in the wine press. Well, that should take note of that because that's not how you do it. When you're threshing wheat, is always on a mountaintop. So when the, the oxen and them are going around and grinding up the wheat, the chaff comes off and the wind blows the chaff away and you just have the wheat. But he could not do that. Why? Because we see he was hiding from the Midianites. He couldn't be on any high level because they would see, the scouts would see the fact, oh, it's harvest time. Let's go steal all the food. So he's going into a wine press, which is the low part where they keep it. And they're grinding it down there so that he could grind it and be able to thresh it and be able to keep it and hold it uh, without them even knowing. But notice what the Lord says to him as he sheepishly hides, which is understandable, why he's hiding it down in the wine press so he can get some food. He says to Gideon, the Lord is, is, is saying, the Lord is with you, you, you mighty man of valor. <laughs> if you know Gideon's story, he's not the man of valor, you would think. He's thinking, Lord, turn around. Is someone else here in this wine press area that he's talking to? Because he can't be talking to me. So it was a strange greeting to Gideon. Didn't seem like the Lord was with him, and it didn't seem that he was a mighty man of valor. I mean, what is going on here? But the truth is, God was showing up face to face with him. Apparently, Gideon was a very simple man. We studied that in one of the men's breakfasts. We talked, just he was a simple man ordinary man but look the angel of the lord found him about his daily duty doing his work he's busy he's doing work and god showed up this is very special because here's gideon hiding trying to do his work trying to get a meal trying to provide lord shows up tells him he's a mighty man of valor why? Why? Why would God have a Gideon's call that he's going to be a man of valor, mighty man of valor? <clears throat> One of the truths you need to understand, we see it in Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. The reason why God can look at Gideon and say, man of valor, you mighty man of valor, is because God sees his own not in their present problems, but as finished products. He sees you and I what we will become, not where we are 
today and our problems. How do you know it? And how do I know? And how do you know this to be true? Go back to Romans 8, verses 28 through 30 and read those verses and believe them. And so we're all, we're all, it's, but we, so when that happens, when God shows up and, and he's speaking to you and calling you a mighty man of valor, would you, would you, how do you respond to that? How did Gideon respond to that? Well, he, he, he responded, I, I hope that's not how I would respond. But we see that he responds when the Lord appears to him and says and talks to him directly. Verse 13, Gideon said to him, Oh my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all of this happened to us? If you're with us, why is this all happening? I can't believe this happened. I've been, I, I got, I think, you know, how is this happening here? And where are all the, his miracles? Where are, if, you're, if you really are God and you're showing up and I'm seeing you, where's all the miracles that we heard about? Our fathers have been telling our fathers and those fathers and grandfathers, everybody from Abraham, all the miracles you've done, coming, bringing us out of Egypt, bringing us across the desert, bringing us to the promised land, all these things we read and hear about. Where's these miracles? We're not seeing the miracles. But now, look at the, at the end of verse 13. He makes this really incredible statement. Not a good one. But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midians. Hello, Gideon. That is not, that is not what happened. I know you heard all the great things that God has done in, in your people's lives. I know you're wondering why is it that every why does it seem that God is working in everyone else's life and not mine? But Gideon did not self-examine himself. Or the people didn't self-examine and say, Lord, do you find any wicked way in me? Gideon thought the problem was with God. Not with him, not with the nation of Israel as a whole. But the truth is, Israel forsook God. God did not forsake Israel. And as a believer today, God will never forsake you, never leave you or forsake you, the Bible says. So we cannot have a mindset of a child of God that says, God has forsaken me. Why did God do this to me? Why did God allow this to happen in my life and do this? We should first take a stance of, Lord, if you find any wicked way, am I the result of why I'm in the position that I'm in? Why I'm being oppressed right now is because of my disobedience and not my completely surrendered and humbled life to you. Then what happened? Verse 14, then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Amazing when I read that verse because after you just blasphemed, <laughs> you just went against God and say it was his fault. And God still turned around and said, I'm still going to use you. That's grace, man. He could have he taken him out right there. But he didn't. God had a plan, had a calling in Gideon's life. And Gideon's call, he didn't even know the calling of his, in, that God had on his life. Gideon's call 
He didn't even know that he had a call yet. But he says, you shall save Israel from the hands of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? Don't you get this, Gideon? Haven't you, didn't you see the things that I'm doing here, working in your life? Getting your attention? So he said to him, Oh my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan, my family, where I come from, my neck of the woods, the other side of the tracks, you know. My clan is the weakest in Manasseh. I'm the least in my father's house. That's not being humble. That's being reality. He knew he was weak and least and small tribe. He had no power because he put his trust and power in his own might and his own understanding and his abilities and all of his wealth and resources and in his family life and all that. That's where he was putting his trust in. Not in God. That's why he responded. Verse 16, And the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you. And you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. One man? This is amazing. So where did God see the character or, or you know, the strength coming from, from this man Gideon? He certainly didn't see it. But he had might. But not the might you normally would think. The might that God saw was God was looking at the character of this man. He had might because he was a humble man now. He was a caring man. He was a knowledgeable man. He was spiritually hungry. He was teachable. We see in all of these verses. Gideon had the might of the weak because God's strength is perfected in weakness. We see that in 2 Corinthians 12.9. But he had a good question. How, Lord, can I save Israel? You're not going to save them. I'm the one that's going to save them through you. I'm the one that's doing the work. You can do nothing apart from me. He had enough strength to just take the next step forward. <laughs> that's all he had. But he could not see himself as anyone who could do great things for God. He had a limitation in his mind based on his past and his upbringing, all these things. He was limited in what God could do through his life. He limited God, what he wanted to do through his life. Because he listened to his replay of record of going in his mind, or I don't know what you call it today, the digital replay and that was going on in their minds from their past, and they limit themselves of what God could do through them, even though God was had a call on their life. He thought of himself as insignificant, from the smallest clan of his tribe. That he was the least of his own family. I wouldn't even use me. But at the same time, he was correct in the fact that he knew he couldn't save Israel. But a great God that he follows, a great God who leads, can use a small, weak Gideon to rescue Israel that we will see. Because God says in his words, surely I will be with you. And you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. God's assurance to Gideon with his own word was not to build up his self-confidence. But to assure him that God was indeed with him. God did not need more self-confidence in a man. 
The reason why you're in the position you are, you need more self-confidence. That's the worldly thinking. That's the cycle babble. No, no. What everyone needs to have, including Gideon, is do you need to have more God confidence? That is what you need. That's what we all need. It's important to know that God has sent us, but it is even greater to know that he is with us. That God is with us to do these things that God's called us to do. That it is this assurance that God gave to Moses we see in Exodus 3. It was the same confidence that we see that Jesus told his believers, all of his believers in Matthew 28, 20. The key to serving God, the key to ministry, the key to being used by God and being an instrument of the Lord is to say, it is not who I am, it's who you are, Lord. And if you choose to use the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, you get all the glory. If you choose the weak things to show your strength, then I qualify. Because I have nothing, and I'm weak, and I'm foolish at times. And if you choose to use me, you get all the glory, Lord. Because it's obvious I can do nothing on my own apart from you. That's why we never want to take the glory away from God when we're serving God. Never. What has God called you to do for him? What stretching thing has God called you to do that will require complete trust in him and power by him to do it? Remember, God would say to you and me, it's not about you. It's about me, and I am with you. Those are very important words in serving in Serving God, those are very important words you'll want to simplify and keep a reminder to you. Verse 17. Then he said to him, Gideon said to, to Jesus there, If now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who talk with me. He still didn't fully trust what, he was, what was happening. Do not depart from here, I pray, until I come to you and be, bring out my offering and set it before you. And he, and he said, Jesus said, I will wait until you come back. <laughs> Gideon, show me a sign. I need, to, I have a, I need a sign that this is, this is who you are. The angel of the Lord. God, right? God, this is you. Do not depart. I'm asking you, don't depart. Why? Because I'm going to need to go prepare a, and kill an animal and, and, and get it prepared and everything else for the sacrifice. I, because I, I, if you're God, I need to make sure I'm doing the sacrifice for you. And, and, and what does this angel of the Lord, God say? I will wait until you're back. So Gideon went in and, in and prepared a young goat and unleavened bread from, the ephah of, from an ephah of flour, the meat he put in a basket and he put the broth in a pot and he brought them out to him under the terebinth tree and, and presented it them. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread 
and lay them on this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord put out the end of the staff that was in his hand. It's like a shepherd, is it not? And touched the meat and the unleavened bread, and fire rose out of the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread, and the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. <laughs> You got to show me a sign. You got to show me a miracle. You got you got to you got to do something to show me here. And God patiently said, "I'll wait. Okay, gotcha. Got, I I I can work with this here. That's a good sign, don't you think? That he, fire came out of a rock, torched it, but had a really nice barbecue moment right there. You would think that would change a life." I think it would change my life, I would hope. That would change a man's life. It wasn't wrong for Gideon to ask the confirming sign. We should have some confirmation when God's asking you to go put you and everyone in their life to go conquer an enemy. God, are you really, is this you before I go out? I really want to know this is you before I take this step. It made sense to ask God to confirm some area of direction that was not specifically detailed in his word to him. He didn't give him all the details of the plans of how he was going to take, be one man and have a, be a man of, of, of strength and get strength somehow to take these many nights out. You, you didn't explain these details. You only said, I'm going. You didn't tell me how I was going to go, when I was going to go, and how it's all going to play out. That's how God works. Did you know that? Don't you just love it? So... He asked. For example, we don't need a special sign from God if God loves you or not. Why? Because he forever, forever demonstrated his love at the cross, according to Romans 5, 8, he showed his love by dying on the cross for your sins. So for you to say, God, show me a sign that you love me. That tells you you don't know the word of God. He already demonstrated that love. He doesn't need to show you a, another sacrifice that he loves you. You just trust, believe of what he's already done on the cross. And it's true for many other things, specifically detailed in God's word. Yet, when it comes to guidance for our lives, and things not specifically detailed in the word of God, it is possible to look for and expect confirmation in various ways. That we're looking for God. I see a boundary, I see where you say, but I need confirmation from your word, Lord. Bring some things in here that helps line things up for me. Well, in this case, Gideon asked for that first sign, and sure enough, the fire, together with all these other aspects of, of what God was doing in this moment here, was certainly in an experience that Gideon should be able to say, I believe. But what happened? Verse 22, now Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. So Gideon said, Alas, 
O Lord, o Lord God, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. And then the Lord said to him, Peace be with you. Do not fear. You shall not die. So Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is peace. Jehovah Shalom. Right? To this day, it is still in Ophrah and of the Abahazarites, it's still there. So Gideon demonstrates and believes this person was simply a man at first. And then the angel of the Lord does and shows this sign was that he was he was completely human in character yes but this is who this, this is God revealing himself and then what does God say to him what does the angel of the Lord say to him peace be with you do not fear you shall not die he's giving him reassurance of his call Gideon's call has this reassurance from God that you're not going to die you can do not fear you're going to have this peace that comes from me and once Gideon realized the identity of the angel of the Lord he was terrified he literally became terrified. Why? Because he realized at that moment that he was really talking and responding. And he must have had those moments. Oh, what did I just tell God? And I'm demanding God. And I'm, oh no, this is not good. You kind of have a flashback of what you might have already done. But Gideon was an altered man because of this. It transformed him. The angel of the Lord brought this comforting word to this terrified Gideon, but it caused him to have a radical change in that man's life at that time. How did Gideon respond? Besides being terrified and God had to give peace, he then worshipped God. Once you're humbled, once you're broken, once you realize you're heard from God, it should cause you and I to worship God. And he did. He built an altar there to the Lord. He did this as an act of worship and consecration unto the Lord, whom he had just encountered face to face. And he was no longer terrified of God. Because you notice, he titled the altar to show what was coming out of his heart at that moment. He built the altar and he called it, The Lord is Peace. Jehovah Shalom. The man was at peace. Verse 25, Now it came to pass in the same night that the Lord said to him, Take your father's young bull, the second bull of seven years old, and tear down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the wooden image that is beside it. And built an altar to the Lord your God and on top of this rock in the proper arrangement and take the second bull and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the image which you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men from among his servants and did as the Lord had said to him. But because he feared his father's household and the men of the city too much to do it by day, he did it by night." So it happened right, right immediately. Once Gideon's call came to him, once God has confirmed it to him, God has given some direction what to do. He was supposed to go to make this, take the steps and God was going to guide him. He would immediately that night, God said, go, don't wait on this. 
Don't, don't hesitate on this. Just do immediate obedience on this. And when Gideon made himself responsive to God, God guided him. Notice that. Once you respond to the call that God has to you, he will then show up immediately and give you the details and help you guide you through that call. He will equip you. He will empower you and strengthen you and guide you. He is with you. And perhaps it's often as soon as Gideon built that altar with the altar built. Now God commanded him to sacrifice something on it. And understand, after God has revelation for you, comes consecration for you. Once he reveals the truth, what he wants to do in your life, he's going to consecrate it. He's going to bring about something for you and I to do. And for Gideon, it was to go against his father who was worshiping pagan idols and in, in a city, in a, a father, he was going to go in and dismantle that pagan altar and cut down that wooden idol, and he was going to use it to bring sacrifice to God. Ooh. This is Gideon's community. This community that his father was in, and he's been there, and in all the city. This is a city that had, Baal was the worship thing. It wasn't God, Jehovah. No, no. This Baal was the worshipped right along with Jehovah, the Yahweh at that time. They were like commingling, and God called Gideon to step up and to get his own house in order first. God had Gideon call on his mind all along. And when, when the right time was happened, Gideon's call then was then challenged. You're going to do this for me. After Gideon gets a little squirrely and come to realize it is really truly God working in his life and his, this is call is from God. He gets terrified. God brings the peace into him. And when the peace and the assurance comes in, you know this is of God. This is what he wants you to do. Then all of a sudden, you're going to need to consecrate. You're going to be tasked to do something that's going to challenge you in your faith and your understanding and your trust in God. And here is just like Gideon. All of a sudden, he finds himself. He's going to have to get his house in order. Family is top priority. Ministry begins at home. The highest pressure, the highest priority, the highest um, pleasure comes when the ministry of your own home. But you have to have your home in order before God then can use that to do you other things that God wants to do. And how he had to get his family in order is he had to get rid of those things in his house, his family house, what his father built, the altar, the, the, uh, the, the idols that all had to be dismantled. And it was going to completely disrupt the entire community. And because of that, he did it at night with 10 men. So while they were sleeping, he dismantled everything. Why? Because he knew he would be challenged and they would kill him if they saw him in the daylight doing what God called him to do. He probably would, he would die. But look what happened. And when the men of the city arose early in the morning... Sure enough, there was the altar of Baal torn down and the wooden image that was beside it was cut down and the second bull was being offered on the altar which had been built. So they said to one another, who has done this? And when they had inquired and asked, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, had done this thing. And then the men of the city said to Joash, bring out your son that he may die 
because he has torn down the altar of Baal and because he has cut down the wooden image that was beside it. But Josh, Joash said to all who stood against him, Would you plead for Baal? Would you save him? Let the one who would plead for him be put to death by morning. If he is a god, Baal, if he is a god, let him plead for himself because his altar has been torn down. Therefore, on that day, he called him Jeroboam, or Jerumabal, saying, Let Baal plead against him because he has torn down his altar. Who is this called, this Jerubabal? That is another name for Gideon. They, they, they changed his name. They, were, they, were, they called him another name here and let, the plead, let Baal plead against this guy, Gideon, my son. Let him plead against him. He's the one that got torn down. He's the one that did it. Let, let's see if Baal can deal with this himself directly. Why are you guys going to kill my son when Baal can himself, if he's God, he can do this? didn't take them long and hard to figure out who, who tore down the altar and, and the idol. And when they did, what he did couldn't be hidden. <laughs> it was in front of the entire community. And this was very powerful. Baal was a very powerful idol that they worshipped, this false god. Became a, their main religion. But here... Joash, instead of throwing his son out to them to kill him, Joash, jo Gideon's father, made a very logical argument to preserve his son's life. Baal's the offended party. Let's see what Baal, the God, will do. A man against Baal is to strive and contend and, and have a title of honor. Wait, wait, wait. Our, our God, Baal, can deal with this. So what happened? Then all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east gathered together and they crossed over and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Then he blew the trumpet and the Abarites gathered behind him and he sent messengers throughout all the Manasseh who also gathered behind him. He also sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, Naphtali, and they came up to meet them. So we see here that the, that the Spirit of the Lord comes upon. God is moving here. It comes upon Gideon. He's now a mighty man, a leading others. Other the tribes are coming to join up with them. And in the, the pouring, out, pouring of the Holy Spirit is promised upon all flesh that we see in Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. Acts 2, 17 and 18. The Spirit of God will empower divine uh, leadership to do what God's called them to do. It's Gideon's call. It's a God's call upon the life of this man. And it's going to be God who's going to divinely empower him. And it's going to be God who's going to lead them and give victory. And when he blew that, that trumpet, because of this divine empowering that God has uh, placed the Holy Spirit upon Gideon, he was able to gather an impressive number of troops in a very short period of time, we will see in Judges 7-3, where there were about 32,000 men came to follow him into battle. Here's a man that no one would follow. And all of a sudden, God empowers him. Now people flock to follow. 
because they see a call on his life. So Gideon, verse 36, Gideon said to God, if you have if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, look, I shall put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. And if there is a dew on the fleece only, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. That's exactly what happened. And when he arose early in the next morning and squeezed the fleece together, he wrung the dew out of the fleece. How much water? A bowl full of water. It wasn't lightly damp. Do you think it's damp? I think it's damp. I don't know if it's damp. Do you, can you put that, honey, can you put that again? Does that feel? No. It wrung out a whole bowl of water. That's how much. Then Gideon said to God, do not be angry with me. <laughs> Why do you ask them, please don't be angry with me? Because you're about to ask something foolish, is what you're usually about to say. Because remember, he already was received the first sign, a miracle of God saying, this is God doing the work. And now he had the nerve to ask to throw out a fleece and have it wet by morning. Then Gideon said to God, do not be angry with me. But let me speak just once more. Let me test. Ooh, you're testing God. Let me test. I pray. I'm asking you. Let me, let me test you, please. Just once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece, but on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night. It was dry on the fleece only, but there was dew on all the ground. <laughs> oh man God had already given Gideon a sign here now Gideon asked God to do a second miracle to confirm his word and then he asked for a third miracle to confirm that again see sometimes Christians talk about putting out a fleece before the Lord And this phrase refers back to this moment right here when someone says, did you throw out a fleece? I threw out a fleece. They're referring to this moment right here in Gideon's life. To what Gideon did right here. He used a literal fleece, though, in asking God to confirm his word with a sign. And he did this because he said, then I shall know, really, 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 really know, you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. Gideon showed that he, he had a weakness, a weak. He was weak, imperfect faith. He wasn't a, a solid, faithful man at this point in his life, that God was, had a calling on his life to do, to do work. He, he was trembling, trembling into this calling. And for such a bold, life-endangering mission, one might understand and encourage the fact that you want to make sure, with triples make sure. But asking for the second and third signs showed that his faith was weak. Essentially, this test he did was wrong. The test was wrong because it was essentially a trick it had nothing to do with fighting the Midianites 
Gideon probably didn't even understand that he was actually dictating his terms to God. God, you're going to do this for me, and you're going to do this for me, and you have to do this for me, and you're going to do all these things, and if you don't do those things, I'm not doing what you're telling me to do. Gideon, I don't think, really understood what he was telling God what to do. We don't tell what God, God what to do. God is to tell us what to do. Sometimes God shows his displeasure. You know that when someone is telling God what to do. If you remember Luke 1.18, Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, <laughs> he asked for a confirmation sign, and what did God do? The Lord made him mute until the birth of his son. And Gideon also didn't keep his word because God fulfilled the sign once and Gideon said that would be enough for him to go forward and be obedient and trust that this is of God and move forward. But he went back on his word. He didn't do that. He asked two more signs. But yet, the Lord here was still merciful and gracious to Gideon. Now, Sometimes you can look at this and you can get all of a sudden too critical of Gideon because of this. But we should consider the challenge that was ahead of him. A simple man living a simple life, doing basic things, trying to make a living, making survival, just working really hard. The enemy's coming there. He's thinking it's God forsaking them. No, it's because Israel was forsaken. He wasn't walking with God. The nation wasn't working with God. So God took their hands off. Life became very, 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 very difficult. And he's, he's all this is going on. And then now come God in the, in face to face and says to Gideon, Gideon, I have a call for you. That, and you're going to be life-threatening. People are going to possibly die because you're going to go to war. But notice, Gideon's weak faith was still greater than no faith at all. And so for this reason, Gideon is rightly included in the register of great men and women of faith. His name is in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32. All of that played out he was still, in the eyes of God, a faithful man, an example for us today. Father, we thank you and praise you. And we thank you, Lord, for the fact that of your mercy and your grace upon our life. We're thankful 